Students, pay attention, students. Good morning, I'm your substitute teacher, Mr. Bletch, and these are my rules. The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily represent the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast, students, that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. Now, students, this is very important. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that. Bueller. 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 (laughs) Is it stopped ringing? Okay, it stopped ringing now. Stopped ringing. Uh, All right. Mine came with this really phenomenal feature. Yeah, what's that? An off off button. Off button, I know, yeah. David, we found a new airplane for you. Oh, whipping on me! This is this is just uh, this is just right up your alley, man. You were so hot to fly the jetpack, and you said you could fly to the grocery <laughs> store if you could. All right, so now we got and we this. got a deal for you. Yeah, we got a deal for you. Okay, so, which one of these is it? This is the uh, it's the first two items on our little list here. Which uh, is I had a the same, feeling. The same story, uh, and I haven't really read this whole thing because it looks so uh, just so awesomely frivolous to me. But uh, what's this guy's got this jet powered wing? Oh, I know who you're talking about now. That he straps to his back. As I'm reading a story here from the Guardian, uh, the Guardian, which is a, 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 a United Kingdom uh, newspaper, British newspaper, and uh, it says a, a Swiss daredevil's bid to cross the English Channel, propelled by a jet powered wing strapped to his back, moved a step closer yesterday with the successful 36 kilometer test flight over Switzerland. So. And for those of you that are metrically challenged, that's 21 miles. 21 miles. And so, the reason it's 21 miles is that duplicates uh, Santos Dumont's crossing of the uh, English Channel in the Demoiselle. Well, now that's a very cool thing. But let's get back to the. We'll come, if you want to talk about Dumont, we can do that. But let's talk about this wing for a second here. You're not changing All of a sudden, I'm just giving you a frame of reference yeah. here. He's going to do this a lot faster than, than uh, Dumont did. Yeah. Santos Dumont did. Yeah. Yeah. To say it's hitting 180 miles an hour, and he did the 21 miles in 12 minutes. Uh, that speeds up to 180 miles yeah. an hour. So, are you ready to ride this thing? Uh, not quite. <laughs> well, then it must not be because you were you were raring to go for the jetpack, and look where that goes. Well, you know, with the jetpack, I had this uh, this uh, uh, feeling, this view that kind of dates back to early hang gliding. Yeah, where the line was, don't fly any higher than you want to fall. Right. Which, huh. course, you know, we progressively, you know, started getting into the thousands of feet over the years. But early on, you just skimmed a few feet off the ground and you went down long slopes. So my vision of the jetpack is, I don't have to get out of ground effect until I get a really good feel for how it flies. I didn't figure I had to get any higher. I didn't have to get high enough in the jetpack to actually hurt myself if I screwed up. Right. And by the time I worked myself up to getting high enough for the parachute to be uh, a lifesaver, uh, which is not that high, uh, you know, I'd have gained a feel for piloting the the hovercraft. Uh, this thing, you got to start out hot and high. Yeah. 
Uh, and, is, yeah, and, you got you, you to fall out of an airplane first. So just to describe this for people, just based on the pictures I'm looking at here, it's uh, it's sort of a, a delta-shaped wing that you strap on your back, and it apparently has some sort of jets or some sort of high-powered engines. Just, just that phrase alone, Jack, uh, some sort of a delta-shaped wing that you strap on your back. I know. That, that phrase alone says all you really need to know Well, that's about. basically what Dave used to do back in his hang gliding days, right? I guess, though, we were missing the jet-powered part. You know, but, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, we we hooked into. We didn't really strap it to our back. We hooked into a delta-shaped, swept, tailless wing. Right. And this guy's actually flying something that has something more akin to the plan form of an early Learjet, minus the tip tanks. Uh, it's rigid. It's not flexible. It's a 3D constructed airfoil. Uh, he's got four micro turbos hooked up to this thing, uh, uh, mounted on, I believe they're mounted on him. And uh, then he maneuvers this by flexing his body and turning his head and, and things like that. And it, it started out non-powered. They're flying him off the Alps, mm-hmm. gliding downhill at 150 miles an hour. Yeah. So, uh, I, mean, yeah, I, I want to see this one played out in further test flying and, a, and, and, and some kind of way to get either dual or a simulator ride. And then uh, maybe coming soon to a flight simulator 10. Yeah. <laughs> and unfortunately, this doesn't qualify as an ultralight, though. <laughs> yeah. uh, Why? First off, it's got it's well, it's oh, got it's turbine engines, uh, but the main thing is that it exceeds the, the the stall speed exceeds the maximum speed limit for ultralights. Yeah. So, uh, and you got to recover this with a parachute. There is no landing, no touch and go. Uh, if you touched under too- power, it would be touch and crunch. Oh, and, and, and you know it's too it's it won't make LSA either because he has retractable landing gear. <laughs> Ooh, that's repositionable. <laughs> I'm sorry, Apparently but it's not an Amstrad. From what Dave just said, it has no landing gear. Well, sure it does. I was thinking of the Adidas. Yeah, yeah, pair of Adidas. Yeah, yeah, right. Or Chuck Taylors, or Converse, or you know. Okay. I want steel. I want steel-toed boots, man. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dave. Remember, we'll, wait, wait. We'll, we'll anxiously wait for for future reports from this, and uh, you know, we want to see if you fly this thing into the Ponca City breakfast. Some, some. Yeah, I want to see. Yeah, that would be fun. Going to Ponca City with I that. I tell thing. you what, I've got a buddy here in town. I'll ask him about this. Okay. He's he's like a three thousand jump skydiver. And he's jumped with the Liberty Parachute team at Oshkosh. Out of Dougie, the big yellow DC three. Right. The smile in the sky. I'll ask him. So what you're you saying know, is that you're, you're saying is that that the, the the person to look to to have a lot of information about this new little strap-on wing is a guy who's used to falling out of the sky. Uh, since she got a fall out of an airplane and 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 then land under parachute, uh-huh. I figure he would be a good interim stop for a little information. I mean, last time a parachute canopy opened up over me was 1976, mm-hmm. when I made my tenth and final sport jump out of a C-47 at Zephyr Hill, Florida. And why was uh, it fun? I did not make another jump after that. Why? Well, because that was my 10th jump, three static lines, two hop and pops, and five free falls. And so you won the bet, you were in the six-pack, and now you were done. People kept telling me that 
you know, oh, you're really going to love this once you get used to the falling and the maneuvering and, and the ground rush. And it's do. like as scared SOL one jump, two jumps, three jumps. I got the fear more under control and didn't wet myself. Four jumps, five jumps, six jumps. It's like, wow, it really is easier out of a big airplane. And I'm still scared SOL seven jumps, eight jumps. Nine jumps, ten jumps, watch jumper bounce. Don't go back. Wait, you, watched, you watched the jumper bounce? Yeah. Oh, okay. While I was packing, repacking my canopy after my tenth jump. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. the landing had been a little bit punitive for me because it got uh, really windy before I came down. And I wound up being, uh, uh, let's say, surfed along a field of sandburrs. Uh, for about 200 feet uh-huh. and having to cut away one riser to stop that. Uh, and f- 10 minutes later, the winds that had caused me all that grief were gone and people were jumping normal again. Uh, and in the midst of doing the repack after that little incident, watched nice young lady, part of a trio from the Quebec, uh, from the Montreal area of Quebec, and uh, they went up really fast and came down as a trio, and one of them never got a canopy out. Mm-hmm. Was unconscious all the way to the ground. Uh, and this was a day when they only used automatic openers at really big schools on students. Uh-huh. Today, she would probably have no an automatic opener. No one, could get, to her. No one could, could get to her? No, no way. No, the the two guys that went out the door with her, they all turned and tracked in opposite directions. And I think that there was a signal from when they turned away. It was supposed to be like one, two, three, four, pull. Mm-hmm. Because the two guys that got canopies out pulled exactly together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And after that, you know, they're, Any idea they're not catching up from 3,000 feet. <clears throat> Any idea why she lost consciousness? Uh, there was something said about her being on some medication for sinus issues or something. And the thinking was that a very fast ride in a C-47 with big engines up to 7,500 feet yeah. and then a faster ride down may have had a, a, an impact on that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's a memorable moment, one where I took the parachute back all nicely packed and cleaned and ready to be reused by the next test pilot. And... Uh, <laughs> Jump master says, we're not jumping anymore today, but uh, I got openings in uh, the manifest for tomorrow morning, and your jump master said you just did great. 20-second free fall, maneuvering. Uh, don't worry about the landing. It happens to all of us once in a while. Uh, I said, no, I don't think so. He goes, how about some midday jumps? Uh, uh, jump master would really like to work with you and start you into relative work. I don't think so. Tomorrow afternoon, uh-uh. Not coming back, are you? <laughs> Not coming back, are you? Nope. Oh, man. Well, uh, I don't know. My experience as a skydiver. How do you follow that? Yeah, you can't. Welcome, Pull the folks. reserve. Welcome, folks, to uh, episode number 97 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the general aviation man. podcast. We're recording this episode on uh, Thursday evening, August 28th, 2008. And uh, let me say hi to the gang here in the virtual hangar. That first voice is uh, Dave Higdon. Dave's uh, joining us from Wichita, Kansas. How you doing, David? 
Jeremiah was a bullfrog. Yeah. So you just got back from a little adventure? Yeah, I did a little, uh, did a little research out in Indiana and uh, uh, on, on, on something that I'm going to introduce as a topic here in another couple of weeks. Oh, okay. Certainly not tonight uh, with the list and with my state of energy being a little bit on the deficit side. Okay. But uh, I do want to hear you, you, you kind of tangled a little bit with our friends at the TSA on your way home. When you, when you get through with the introductions, I'd be glad to briefly visit with that. Okay. Uh, okay. All right. And that other voice is uh, Jeb Burnside. Jeb's talking to us from Sarasota, Florida. Hey, Jeb, how's the weather in Florida these days? Well, it's just hunky and <laughs> uh, Did you get my email from earlier today? I did, yes. Yes, yes. <laughs> Looking we, should put that, we should put that map with the episode. Yeah, we should put that map with the episode. Uh, um, um, what, was the, what was the subject line? This is beginning to get old? Uh, I along think it was a little bit more colorful than that, actually. <laughs> so tell us, tell us what what the story is here. Well, you've got uh, hurricanes coming and going down there. And, them's uh, of us who's uh, be down in Florida. Um, um, you know, we had Faye come through um, Tuesday a week ago, and uh, I moved the airplane uh, from from uh, Venice, Florida, up to uh, up to my family home in Georgia. And haven't been back to get it, actually. I was planning to do that this weekend and probably still will. When will uh, we're, it behold? We're, we're, we're recording this on, what, Thursday the 28th, so uh, uh, right before Labor Day weekend. So my, my, you know, my plan is to go up and get the airplane over the weekend and bring it back. Lo and behold, I start poking around the, uh, the Hurricane uh, uh, Center, National Weather Service's uh, Hurricane Center site, as, as people in Florida are wont to do this time of year. And I find not one that I already knew about, but two tropical storms slash soon-to-be hurricanes. You one, guys uh, get all the luck. I know. One, of course, is Gustav, which uh, um, is is set to uh, uh, um, pummel uh, uh, Cuba. I think it's already pummeled uh, uh, Jamaica and it's set to pummel Cuba later this week and then uh, uh, come steaming up the Gulf and, and uh, make landfall in, in the last place on Earth that needs it, which is the New Orleans, Louisiana area, mm. um, <clears throat> maybe Monday or so. And then there's another one called uh, Hannah um, that's out there um, east of the, uh, the Leeward Islands, east of Bahamas, I should say, and it's spooled up. Um, in actuality, though, if you look at the models and you look at the tracks, the historical tracks, and you look at where these two are projected to go, where I am in Florida is about the only spot that's almost guaranteed not to get hit. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, so, that's, I don't know. You know it sounds like famous last words to me. Famous last words, indeed. Indeed. So, as I say, I'm probably going to get the airplane this weekend, get it back in its hangar in, in Florida, and keep you know one eye peeled for the next few days on on um, hurricanes and uh, make sure the airplane's topped off and, and ready to rock and roll. Um, so, who knows? Now, I was who reading knows? a little bit about this recently. That does does your insurance <clears throat> company give you money to relocate well, you know, your airplane? I, How does that I, work? I, I, you're, you're, you and I are reading the same stuff, and, and it's funny. Paul your buddy, Bertarelli, your buddy Bertarelli that, wrote yeah. a couple of posts on the web blog. Bertarelli's office is like 20 feet from mine, and I haven't even talked to him about any of this. 
Um, but I've got um, at my elbow, actually, uh, my recently renewed um, aircraft policy. And I've never really noticed anything in it about reimbursing um, um, for um, inclement weather, you know, moving the airplane out of out of harm's way, that kind of thing. But I will, I will check through it. Uh, I don't have my insurance is not from the company that Bertarelli referenced in his blog post on AvWeb. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't know what that means. But the idea being that uh, that that if you're willing to move your airplane, you know, huh. to reduce the risk of it getting hurt by a hurricane, yeah. they'll they'll buy you some gas, basically. Which is which is a good, I think, sound decision on their part, yeah. given the risk of of not. I I talked to uh, I was out at the airport earlier this afternoon, actually. Um, and just happened to run into one of the one of the hangar rats out there, and and first thing I asked him, I said, you know, did you move your airplane for Fay, uh, which was the hurricane um, um, about ten days ago? And he says, no. I says I was getting ready to move myself, but the airplane was going to stay. Mm-hmm. And he's got a very nice Cessna 170. Uh, it's in a hangar just across the way from mine. Uh, nice guy, um, flies it a lot. He's he's I don't, apparently retired. He comes out in the evenings and and just you know uh, goes up for a, a kind of a, a, a sundown uh, flight. Great great way to use the airplane, and it's a great little airplane. Uh, I hate to see it get damaged, and basically said the same to him. He says, "Well, I says um, I got other things to worry about sometimes." And I said, "Well, I understand that, um, but to me." Getting an airplane and getting the puck out of Dodge, as it as it were, um, is, is kind of kills two birds with one stone, doesn't it? Yeah, you get to fly. Yeah, you get to fly. Oh, yeah. Well, three birds. You get to fly. You get out of the. You get out of harm's way. You get your your yourself, your personal property, uh, loved ones, and everything out of harm's way, and you get the airplane out of out of harm's way. What could be better? That's right. And yeah. they cover the cost. If they cover the cost, I don't care. You know, the, the, I you know uh, fuel price. I, I'm not. I'm not so stressed about. Uh, even if the gas was eight bucks a gallon, I wouldn't get stressed about that. Moving the airplane yeah. out of harm's way. But I, the fuel price at Venice, Florida, this evening was four dollars and ninety eight cents for hundred low lead. So I'm not. I'm not stressed about that either. Wow, that looks. That's pretty good, huh? Yeah. So now another odd. Odd byproduct of this weather you're having down there is apparently yeah. you have fish walking on the runways. Is that that right? Fish on the runways. Yes. Now that's not anywhere near me, so I haven't had the uh, the uh, life changing. Yeah. Uh, this is a story. Uh, a story from our favorite aviation magazine, Wired. <laughs> it's not an aviation magazine. Yeah. Uh, the headline is. Uh, headline is yeah, yeah. Ahead. Lead paragraph is a Delta Airlines flight approaching an airport soaked by tropical storm Faye was delayed by four catfish that walked onto the runway. Now, first of all, why are we holding up yeah, airlines no. for catfish? Yeah, I, I mean, I who, who who's making that decision? I know. Um, I've told this story in the podcast in my very 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 first flight lesson. I we we whacked a, a large, basically a rabbit, um, mm. on the runway with the wheel of one of the main gear of a 152, and it hardly slowed us down. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. I'm not sure yeah. why a an airliner is going to have a problem with a couple of fish on the runway. Yeah, uh, I suspect. Yeah, well, the next graph starts out. The fish were unavailable for comment, but it seems they were displaced by the flooding that's made Florida you know, soggier you, than usual, and left. This let, was at the. Go, go ahead. Go ahead, Dave. If you let those, if you let those airplanes run over 
fish exactly. on the runway. The next thing you know, the pilots will want to be working. To well, you know, scale. of course, the old the old joke is, uh, you know, a Delta flight comes in, lands on a runway, runs over four catfish, and um, JetBlue notifies their catering. <laughs> And I am Jack Hodgson. <laughs> and I'm up here at UCAP World Headquarters in Dover, New Hampshire. Uh, <laughs> now I'm going to get I'm going to get letters from JetBlue. Fuck, you know, guys, it's a joke. I, I, I know. Well, well, you know they're, they're, neither, neither, neither Delta nor JetBlue actually serve any food anymore. So it's you know it's it's it's, it's ridiculous. Hey, hey, hey! I, I got crackers. Yeah. On all four Delta legs this past week. Crackers. So, so these, tell us about peanut, but, peanut butter crackers, no less, with actual peanut butter. So tell us about your, your airline's adventure, David. Well, it's interesting. It's been a need for Dave to get the decks cleared and do a family visit out to the hometown in Dave. Indiana. Dave. And things finally got lined up, and I was in good shape Friday the day after we did episode number, where are we, 96, uh, everything's clear, uh, windows open. I go on the Internet, and on a well-advertised, well-promoted travel website, bid on a ticket to go to Louisville, Kentucky, for the next morning. Mm -hmm. Coming back today, 28th, as I did. And the uh, unnamed airline accepts my bid, uh, tells me what the total tab will be with fees, and what my schedule is, which is the way the, the, the system works. So Saturday morning, late in the morning, uh, Brian Annie deposits me at uh, Wichita Mid-Continent Airport and uh, go check in. Uh, I'm not checking any bags. I get my boarding passes. Nice, friendly folks at the counter. A young lady helped me get an exit seat on the uh, on the second flight, which was an EMB 170. Very nice. I'm sorry. Yeah, an EMB 170. Mm -hmm. uh, go to check-in. Go to the security line. Go to the little head security gatekeeper who, you know, holds your driver's license and boarding pass under a 3D magnification machine to make sure it's not counterfeit. Uh, and the guy says, oh, the airline selected you for special screening. Oh, oh, oh you see, you're special. I'm special. And I said, oh, really? The airline did that? <laughs> it's printed on the boarding pass, the guy says, and he takes a blue, oh, yeah, that, yeah. A blue magic marker, and he highlights the code that's on my boarding pass. Uh, later on, I compared boarding passes with uh, a, a guy that I met who's on the next flight in Atlanta, and he showed me his and his wife's, and none of them contained any information similar to what was printed on my boarding pass. Anyway, so I get the group W bench trip. Except instead of getting wanded, I get patted down. Uh, they swab my carry-on bags. They put them through the explosive detection equipment. Uh, you know, they swab my shoes. Uh, they, 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 you know, do three little piggies with my toes. Uh, I'm finally cleared to assemble myself, redress my feet, repack the notebook, sew up, zip up, and get out of there. 
Right. All well and good. Rest of the flight, you know, no harm, no foul. On the return this morning, when my boarding pass was printed out, lo and behold, there's that code in the same spot on the boarding passes. Go through the queue, get to the head honcho. Uh, Guy initials next to the code and says, follow me. And it's over through the group W line. Let me ask you a question without interrupting, without throwing you off track. The the, the code that was that was uh, on the boarding pass did it say UCAP? Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, uh, I kind of wondered about that at first, but it did say five 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 five. Yeah, and it's on a part of the boarding pass that otherwise is blank. Huh. So uh, it's, today, it's printed. It's printed. Yeah, it's printed when the boarding pass is printed. Huh. So it comes out of the airline's computer, whether they're the ones that actually selected me or uh, notwithstanding, uh, it's on the boarding pass when it's printed out. That was the trigger both times. Mm-hmm. Okay. So today we go through the line, and uh, the gentleman ahead of me gets wanded. TSA guy escorts him out, and they he gets his gear and goes on. They invite me into the isolation area. And the guy hangs up the wand and says, I'm going to just pat you down. Really? Fascinating. So they pat me down. Meanwhile, my gear is being, you know, hand searched because it's been randomly selected. Yeah, right. Uh, And they clear me to go and I go over to retrieve my gear, my shoes, my notebook, my briefcase. Uh, Wasn't carrying two bags this time. I checked the one. So... Uh, which, by the way, got hand-checked after the x-ray machines. There was a little badge in there it's saying, we of the TC- TSA have looked in your bag, and yeah. this is just a note to tell you why everything's been disturbed. Yeah, I got one of those um, ones. Yeah. This time, this time, and this is what kind of intrigued me, among other things, uh, the uh, nice young lady with the TSA is holding up one of those inexpensive pin size Swiss Army knives that we get at, at conventions all over the country, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. two or three a year. You know this isn't allowed. You know, I didn't know it was in there. Do you notice how much stuff was in a briefcase? I thought knives under like an inch were allowed. No knives of any kind. Okay. You can put it in your check bag. My check bag's gone. You can mail it back to yourself for 10 bucks, Lady, I get them for free. I don't even think about them. That's why it's in there. Uh, take it away. You know, you shouldn't be carrying these things. Like I said, I didn't know it was in there. And stopped short of saying, and you know what? It's been in there for the last 18 times this bag's been through a security check. Hello? Yep. And, okay. Uh, it's... Uh yeah, it's craziness, right? They, yep, you know, it is. They, they put you through special handling four days earlier, and and they didn't find Yeah, I it. get it on Saturday, and then I get it in again on Thursday. Uh, ostensibly, the airline picked me. There's a special code. Uh, the thing that, aside from them finding the knife, which, like I said, this honest, guys, that, folks, that's no exaggeration. If that pin knife was in there today, it's been in there for years. Right, right. Okay, it's been in that bag for years. Uh, I've when got I was like packing like, it to yeah. go. I found a pair of eyeglasses in there, folding reading glasses that I didn't know I had. Sales tag on it said 2002. Yeah. 
So, you know, the penknife had been in there for years, wasn't trying to put over on anybody. But the fact that the guy ahead of me got wanded, I got padded down. And as I was dressing to leave, that is putting my shoes back on and packing my stuff back away, <laughs> I looked back and the guy behind me is being wanded. So for some yeah. reason or another, they just felt compelled you're, you're to either, touch my savage body. Yeah, I know. I was thinking you either look really suspicious or really cute. One or the other. I don't know which. Uh, I, I, I think know. I, I know. I know. <laughs> well, it is a puzzlement, but it's not as bad as the poor airline guy who's an airline pilot who's on it's the watch not as list. Bad as that guy. Can't work. Yeah. Now let's talk about this. This is just like you know. And on one level, this is not a GA story. Uh, um, and, you know, we actually talked about this offline before we started recording tonight, whether this was a GA story. But let's just talk about it for a few minutes. There's this. Now I'm looking at the story from, uh, what is this, uh, CNN.com. Yeah. Um, we, I mean, I'll just try and summarize it here, and you guys correct me if I'm wrong, but basically we've got an airline pilot who is whose name is on the watch list, and as a result, he's having real problems. He's actually been fired by his airline as a result of this. And uh, now the firing has been been postponed by court order, and he's trying to get his name removed from the watch list, and it's just a big, big mess. And uh, and this is just this is a very dramatic example because the guy's going to lose his yeah. job. But well, compounding it the is time. the guy's a vet. He yeah. the, he served 13 years in the U.S. military, yep. flying National Guard and flying helicopters for the Army and, and apparently the National Guard. And um, now he's on the watch list. He's a, he's a, I don't know if he's a captain or first officer or what, uh, for Colgan Air, which is... Uh, out of uh, Manassas. Out of Manassas. I think that's where their headquarters is. They operate in, nor- in the northeast U.S. and in Texas. Um, but um, what what's going on? Now, you know, the only thing, the story goes into this, the only thing here is... Um, the guy and his name is, I'm going to butcher the last name, I'm sure. His name is Eric Scherfen. Um, Scherfen is a convert to Islam. His wife immigrated from Pakistan when she was 17 and is now a U.S. citizen, small business, yada, yada, yada. Um, what the heck? Now, you know, you know, with some joking aside, uh, well, no, not, not, uh, no joking. I, there's no reason. No, there's no is, reason for David to get no funny way. There's no, no nothing there's no reason. There's, there's no reason for Dave to get patted down. There's no reason. There's no reason for a one inch pin knife, uh, um, to go through the, the scanner 22 times and come and not go through it the 23rd time. Um, but here's a vet. Uh, he's on the watch list. Uh, okay. You know, maybe, a a, a problem with, um, you know, a typo. Maybe the, the his name is similar to uh, some international terrorist's name. Okay, that's acceptable. I understand that part. But there's no way for him to get his name off the list. Right, right. There's no way. He can't get a card or a number or a code word or um, a telephone number or something like that that says, you know, TSA, FBI, CIA, XYZ, ABC has jumped up my rectum. They've inspected me uh, three ways to Sunday, and they have determined I am not a terrorist threat. And therefore, you know, I'm telling you this. This is the information. This is the code word. Let me get on this airplane. More importantly, let me make a living. 
doing what, hey, you know, not coincidentally, the U.S. military trained me to do. Um, well, but he can't even do that. And this is significant. And this is significant for GAY. Because right now there is a TSA proposal in the works to increase security oversight and security regulation of general aviation. And we're not being told the details. They've briefed some of the alphabet groups, but it's all under double secret probation restrictions and what they can talk about. But and, and nobody is screaming. So right now I'm figuring that there's nothing so heinous here that it would cause somebody to say, are you out of your bleeping mind? But, and, and we've been down this road before, so let's not yeah. belabor it here, but let's just kind of make the connection but, but between this latest this, story. This closer, and the mm -hmm. problem is once they start moving in on us, and once they get used to, you know, having, I'm hearing things about one of the items that they're discussing and debating and will probably not be in the initial proposal, but it was actively floated, was a proposal for a TSA inspector, a la the guy that damaged the airliners a few right. weeks ago. Right. And they're now charging the airline with security violations, by the yeah, way. Right. Uh, for these kind of guys to be able to show up on the ramp or your hangar and tell you, I need to look inside your airplane. Why? I don't need a reason why. I don't need a warrant. You just have to let me because I'm TSA and I feel like it. Which the FAA can't even do right now because FAA inspectors, uh, when they want to inspect you for um, your certificates, um, they're not even allowed to go into the airplane unless you, the the operator, the pilot, give permission. Right. And and the TSA and this apparently is saying they can go into any airplane, any hangar, any time. Um, last time I checked, there was still a Fourth Amendment in this country. Uh, maybe maybe I should check again. Yeah. So it, th that's the point of of calling attention to this this latest story is that uh, you know there but for the grace of whoever go we and uh, we need to stay on top of this stuff you know to i don't know do whatever we can moving on thank you moving on uh take a drink take a drink the uh let's see now this is an interesting story a uh solar plane doubles the world record so this is a uh, this is from a story uh on a website called the daily tech which is what is the daily tech i wonder Doesn't is it also wired uh, <laughs> now that's an introduction. It could be. It could be. I don't know. No, I don't know what it is. But it's uh, it's an interesting story. Uh, uh, this is a, uh, a an experimental aircraft. I mean, an, a, a truly an experimental aircraft, not like the ones we f we fly. Um, that uh, is solar powered and unpilot and and no onboard pilot. Um, and it has apparently um, just smashed the old world record for uh, duration of flight. Um, unofficially. Unofficially, apparently, there's some question as to whether they qualified for the record or something like that. But it, but in any event, it flew for 83 hours and 37 minutes. So that's pretty good. What's 83 that's, hours? That's like 83 hours is um, like four days, three and a half three and days. And a half days. Yeah, going going on four days. days. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Uh, which uh, which is better than my bladder can do. Yeah, that's right. So that's why they left you on the ground, dude. That's why they left me on the ground. The Zephyr features an ultra-lightweight carbon fiber skeleton weighing less than 70 pounds. Its 18-meter wingspan is paper-thin and plastered with amorphous silicon solar cells. 
Uh, <laughs> Say that three times. Yeah, I was very careful. Uh, Morphous silicon solar cells. Morphous silicon solar cells. The cells pump power by. Yeah, my, my point exactly. They pump <laughs> power by day to the engines and to lithium sulfur batteries. They store power so it can continue to fly at night. Um, it's that's kind of an interesting thing. My question on all of these things. Yeah, I mean, if you listen to old podcasts, I ask this question every single time we talk about one of these UAVs, and that is, I want to know if it is autonomously piloted or if it is remotely piloted. Right. Um, because to me, it's, it's a big. I mean, it, as from a technical point standpoint, they're they're all very interesting. Um, but from a standpoint of having them in our airspace, um, I have much less problem with the remotely piloted ones than I do with the autonomously piloted yeah, ones. I think this one, uh, by virtue of its light weight, has to be autonomous. What's the difference? If auto- no, autonomous would be heavier because it would have to have more computers on board. No. Uh, uh-uh. it would it would uh, it has to have an it would have to have an EEPROM, uh, as opposed to um, the chips and the radio gear. Um, oh, maybe, okay. okay, and probably even video if you really wanted to do um, uh, remotely piloted correctly. But this way, all it really has to have is an EEPROM that says, you know, climb, turn, do that for you know eighty three hours and and thirty six minutes, and then land. Or, or or shut yourself down and, and you'll be caught at such and such an altitude or something like that. I don't know. Um, it, is an, it is an interesting <laughs> demonstration of what can be accomplished with a little sunshine oh, yeah. And, yeah. And, no, this, and, and, and a really uh, highly charged uh, personality. Yeah. yeah. A highly charged personality. Interesting oh, technology here. Um, before we move on, I just want, where did this flight take place? I'm trying to figure, just trying to skim this story yeah. here. Was I don't well, it's a see UAV. it. It's an unmanned aerial vehicle. It doesn't say eight, uh, autonomously. Yeah, right. it's 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 a UAV. Yeah, it doesn't say whether or not it's autonomous or remotely piloted. It just says unmanned. Uh, that's a very good question. For some reason, I had the Im- impression that it was overseas. That it wasn't in the yeah. US. That it was uh, it probably I, I says that here someplace. It would. You would think it would. Um, oh well, we'll figure it out. A listener well, will tell us. Somebody will tell us, and uh, we'll be the wiser for it. But uh, um, of course, it, you know, it kind of it kind of begs the question: if you can stay aloft for eighty-three hours, what difference does it make where you took off? <laughs> it looks like it could be Mojave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it has that I mean, look. Looking at pictures. looking at a couple of the pictures, wow, it's even a twin, but not counter-rotating engines. How do you know that? By the uh, blade angles. Oh, I see the blade angles. All right, yeah, okay. All right. The blade angles. I don't understand. He, he said he ob- he observed that there. He observed first that it was a twin engine, and then he observed that they were not counter rotating props. And I asked him how he could figure that out, and he said, "Yeah, I see that." So, anyways, yeah. uh, astuteness. It's cool. it's twin twin motored. Cool technology, <laughs> twin motored. Cool technology. Moving on again here. Let's see now. Oh, the Take FAA had another good week. Oh uh, uh, yes. So, what day was it? Do you? Well, you didn't have your airplane, so you weren't like, flying. It like, but it was like Tuesday, I thought. But suddenly, yeah, Tuesday, Tuesday was when the world fell apart. Tuesday midday, suddenly airplanes came to a stop, um, sort of, uh, because the FAA had this fairly major computer glitch, and suddenly. Uh, flight plans couldn't get into the system, and, uh, and we really hate when that happens. Yeah, and then uh, 
uh, and then they tried to transfer all this stuff to another the, to the other. So I guess Atlanta was the one that had problems, and then they tried to transfer mm-hmm. it to what someplace in Utah, Salt Lake City, or something. Salt like Lake that. City, yeah. And uh, and Salt Lake City was handling it for a while, but then they got overloaded, and then everything kind of per, you know uh, uh, spread yeah, through the system. A, and, it took about as long for Salt Lake City to get overloaded as it takes for the pushes to spread to the West Coast. Right. right? Right, right. So it's just a big mess, and they were. How long were they actually down, or, or how long were they? It they was slowed like down. Twelve, eighteen hours. The the total effect. It's it's. Um, it doesn't. It's not really clear from this story. Let me look at the other story here real quick. Um, it was back. Uh, up. It was, everything was caught up this morning. Yeah, it went down for it went down today. for two point five hours. Uh, but then the ripple effects, they didn't really recover from the ripple effects until sometime the following morning, very early in the morning, like, you know, 2 a.m. or something like that. Yeah. But the punchline, there's, there's, it's, the punchline in all this is all of this had to do with a corrupted file yeah. that they were trying to, to apparently update the software or, there you know, no do, do some corruption in this administration. I know. I, exactly. Now, now. Uh, um, so they, 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 <laughs> one little bitty file. It's probably just a text file. It yep. got scrambled at some point. It's probably just a configuration file, and it got corrupted, so to speak. Or that's the story they're giving us anyway. And it went on the server at the at the Atlanta facility and crashed the Atlanta system. And they switched everything over to Salt Lake. Now they're saying, well. You know we're gonna we're gonna fix this, and what what we're gonna do is we're gonna put another sixty four k of RAM on our PC Junior, <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's gonna it, fix it. it. I'd heard that they were gonna buy a second BlackBerry, but it just maybe that's that maybe that's what it is. Um, but you know, all kidding aside, that's I think that's an important point of this story is that is that everyone's pointing to the bad hardware, and admittedly they have some awful hardware in these systems, yeah. all right? Yeah. But it wasn't a hardware problem, all right? Exactly. It, it was right. a software problem, all right? Actually, yeah. the majority of the hardware they've got has worked quite effectively and yeah. quite consistently for about 20 years. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the hardware is not really the issue. And, and, right, the hardware has not been the issue for a long that, time. But that's always the problem with automated systems, especially of the scale. Is it's the software, and and you get into trying to upgrade and update and and take advantage of the new technologies and every, everything that are out there, and you you just can't write the software. That's it, this this is this dates back to the eighties when they were trying to do the the National Airspace System Plan that Jay Lynn Helms gave NASP. us. They couldn't, yeah, NASP. They couldn't write the software for the host computer. And that's why it took, you know, I don't know. I don't even know if the host ever went online. I remember, I remember when host went online. I went to yeah, the dedication okay. at, uh, at Washington Center uh-huh, uh, uh-huh. out there at Leesburg. Uh, yeah. uh, T. Allen McCarter was yeah. the administrator of the and McCarter was the administrator in, what, the mid-'90s? No, no, no. Uh, 87, 88. He wrapped up the first, uh, uh, he wrapped up the uh, end of the uh, second Reagan term. Ah, okay, okay. Okay, so this would have been uh, 87, 88 when the first, somewhere here in the kitchen, I've got a, a host computer dedication ceremony coffee mug that I know will be you don't get out pennies much, on do eBay much someday. I collect coffee mugs. Okay, all right. Um, but, but I guess my punchline is that it's the same old story. 
there's always some little software glitch. And these are the same people that want to do, you know, uh, perennially want to do some new um, multi-billion dollar uh, hardware software upgrade to automate airspace. These are the same people who want to bring us ADSB. Well, now you're just sa- not recognizing the fundamental problem with this. Well, I'm going to get on. The I'm going to get on the watch list here too. The, but the, the dollars came the wrong way. Exactly. If the dollars had come as user fees. Everything would be copacetic. Yeah, okay. But those nasty dollars came as excise taxes, and they just don't perform as promised. That's right. That's right. Hey, speaking of ADSB, so what's the deal here? There's some sort of story this week about ADSB. He is moving right along, isn't he? Segway, did he go? Oh man! Tell me the story. Is uh, that, that 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 somebody, the probably someone in the federal government, is saying that the slow adoption of I don't know. Tell me well, what the story. It's is. the Reason Foundation, which um, in this case Bob is the same Poole as the again. federal government. And why are we paying any attention to Bob Poole? Right. Uh, I'm who's, sorry, who, Bob, but honest. Who's Bob Poole? He's Bob the, Poole is the aviation expert at the Reason Foundation. And what is we put, we, we put the word "expert" in, in quotes. Yeah, what's the Reason you. Foundation? It's a, it's a re- think right-wing tank. think tank that thinks everything should be privatized. Okay. Now, what everything they, the government, any government does should be privatized. Okay. Then, and now, what are they saying about ADSB recently? They are saying that they've been a long been a proponent of ADSB. Yes. Um, and um, the question. Um, well, I'll just read the first couple of lines of this, this story. If ADSB began in Alaska's capstone program in 1999, was put into practical use with UPS cargo jets the same year, and the network of ADSB ground stations should be completed by 2013, why has the FAA set 2020 as the deadline for equipping planes with just ADSB out? And this is ADSB out is basically you're sending your information. Um, ADSB in is where you're re- receiving all this information and yeah. using it in the cockpit to process, processing it in the cockpit and using it to make decisions. We haven't even gotten close to that point yet with ADSB. It's probably going to be 2035 or so uh, um, if, if indeed you know we, we stick to this 2020 schedule for ADSB out. But the next sentence here is the Reasons Foundation. Bob Poole, Reason Foundation's Bob Poole, asks the question, and after, quote, puzzling over this for several months now, interviewing experts and reading extensively, unquote, Poole has come to the conclusion that the delayed implementation of improved technology providing in-cockpit traffic, weather, and more is, dot, 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 largely your fault. In other words, in other words general aviation aircraft owners um, are balking at ADSB because of the expense, because of the the perceived cost benefit ratios here, um, and because of that balking, uh, the FAA uh, has not uh, put ADSB on a fast track. Boys and girls, would that we had that kind of influence. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, part, the reason this scenario is actually proving out. Uh, yeah. United Parcel Service. Yeah. For example, is uh, which was a, a participant in a test of ADSB in the Ohio River Valley that ran pretty much concurrently with Capstone in Alaska. Well, and, and United Parcel Service liked this technology so much they bought the company. They bought the company and they, they developed bought, software. They bought tomorrow. Yeah. They, they bought, bought tomorrow. They developed it, renamed it into UPS Aviation Technologies or something, and then of course that got bought by Garmin a few years back. But go ahead, Dave. 
well, the, the, uh, the, the, the folks at UPS, and I just came out of their hub, and uh, their air hub in Louisville, uh, SDF, Louisville International, uh, a.k.a. Standard for Field. They have this, they're deploying a technology that uses ADSB out and in to communicate between aircraft so that pilots can match descent and approach speeds and profiles right. so that they've got almost flight idle descents right. from an entry to the approach to the threshold of the runway with perfect spacing between all the aircraft using ADSB signals between the aircraft to tell the aircraft commander or the PIC, whoever's flying the aircraft, whether they need to speed up 10 knots or slow down 10 knots. Uh, it's really quite remarkable. Right. Now, and, and, yeah. And it saves them a boatload of money and fuel. Right. And we, we've talked about this a couple times in the past. So, f- so, so the Reason Foundation says that it's not being embraced because we just aren't, you know, getting in line. Who cares what Reason yeah, Foundation Jim, says? pick it up from here. That's the, the, the second graph of this thing. Well, um, it, it, pool, it, the story goes on, and this is a story on AvWeb. It says, Pool's basically, you know, wet dream here is that... Um, You're paraphrasing now. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Um, is that, quote, aviation stakeholders, unquote, would um, take the ball and run with it and demand these technology upgrades... Um, that would save the FAA money over time by replacing the ground uh, uh, basically eliminating ground-based radars and probably a lot of controllers in the bargain, but also would require the stakeholders to make some investments in the airborne equipment. And, uh, of course, you know, Reason Foundation has long been a, uh, a supporter of user fees. Um, ADSB would not coincidentally facilitate the uh, imposition of user fees because um, of its ability to accurately, um, uh, uh, I don't know what the word would be, measure, count, um, account for specific aviation activities in the system. Not just filing a flight plan, but uh, every centimeter you flew would be logged, at least as far as what what you would be doing in the IFR system would be logged, and you could get a bill at the end of the month. Right. It's all of a piece. It's all well, of the it's, same. So it's just I like the up. idea that it's our fault for not re-equipping. Right. And he goes on to talk about how key stakeholders should act in place of Congress and the FAA mm-hmm. and start adopting it and adopting their own technologies because the ground stations are going in. And the ground stations look to be on schedule for completion in 2012, 2013. So we're talking strictly about the airborne equipment here. Right. Uh, but, you know, his idea is if key stakeholders, and we would put UPS and its current action in that in that category, would go ahead and, and, and drive this process forward to the point where people saw the benefits in sufficient quantity and, and depth to clamor for it, which would increase the possibility of financial incentives to help GA offset the cost of equipping. And and part of the deal here is uh, in one fashion, he's not wrong. Show me the benefits of equipping my airplane with ADS-B, and those benefits... um, allow greater efficiency, greater safety, you know, something. Show me those benefits. 
and show me the, the cost-benefit ratio here. And if it's favorable, I will do it. But here's the punchline. If it's a matter of i got to do this to access certain airspace, then it's a non-starter because I could already access that airspace right now. Right. You pointed this out a long time ago. Right. Uh, and I did. You know, I pointed out the, 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 the lack of incentive in terms of services and uh, uh, information that the FAA was promising to deliver. And you pointed out that the uh, uh, the ADSB, and rightfully so, the ADSB system didn't really deliver a lot that you couldn't get with existing technology. Exactly. Uh, so all the benefits seem to be geared toward driving down FAA's costs with us footing the bill to, to help them out. Mm-hmm. Uh now, I personally still like the idea of a, a single box that takes care of traffic and weather data link and uh, uh, showing where I am to other people. Uh, I mean, the idea of being able to lose some other equipment or not invest in it to have this happen. But the FAA was desperately shallow on things like what kind of weather services can we expect for equipping. Because once they put the system in, delivering this stuff is not 100% free, but a very low-cost item. Mm-hmm. Because the data is already be, being generated. It's just right. a matter of channeling it through ADS-B. Well, and, and I always come back to um, what happened with TIS, Traffic Information System. Yeah. And yeah. the ASR-9s and the ASR-11s. Now, I just threw a bunch of acronyms out there. TIS, Traffic Information System is a MODAS transponder technology. Um, certain TRACONs, uh, Terminal Radar Approach Control uh, uh, Facilities around the country, equipped with uh, ASR-9 radar systems. ASR stands for Airport Surveillance Radar. Equipped with ASR-9s, uh, have built into them uh, the ability to um, send and receive the MODAS uh, traffic information of all the aircraft in the in airborne that the radar sees, and basically, if you got a mode S transponder, um, the uh, um, well, even if you don't have a mode S transponder, the radar sees your airplane, sees right. your your mode C, your mode A transponder, and stores that information. Uh, in its next uh, uh, revolution, it sends out on a different frequency. Um, information to all mode S aircraft uh, received by all mode S aircraft uh, on nearby traffic. So basically, that shows it's, them in a picture that plays exactly on a function display. Exactly, and it's 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 uh, you, you can see this today if you, if you've ever flown a high end uh, uh, Cirrus, for example, with traffic, and and there's a lot of other uh, um, systems out there that have similar traffic representations on on multifunction displays in the cockpit. But that's that's again that describes the basic tra- traffic information system, and this was a big deal back in the '90s. And yeah. the FAA um, spent a lot of time and energy uh, putting this into place. They spent a lot of time and energy getting GA to adopt it and to adopt MODS transponders. And all well, the big players produced new MODS right. boxes that were exactly. cheaper than prior MODS boxes, so that the average players like us. Uh-huh. A- Embrace this technology and get 
traffic on our multifunction which, display yeah. for about one quarter of the cost of an active alert system. Exactly. So that was, as I say, you know, I don't know when when did whenever mode S. Uh, this was the late nineties. Um, it, it, it peaked and, in and, the and early two thousands. Yeah, it, it was a technology that worked. It was it was relatively inexpensive. It was a, it, I think, uh, uh, no one can really say that you know quantify, for example. Um, that it saved lives, or saved lives, or saved people swapping paint, but it's it's. I think they have, the the benefits of it are self evident. So, what did the FAA do in like '04? They came up. They they decided that they were going to go around in some of these ASR nine installations around the country. They're going to install an upgraded radar system called the ASR eleven. Great, no problem. Uh, more power to you. But they cheaped out. Um, and they decided they, not to spend the money to continue exactly. to support the Modest channel that already existed. It already existed. And it was about a quarter million dollars per radar to do yeah. this. So uh, all those folks that had invested being, uh, in new transponders, uh, it's kind of like the middle finger to you. Sorry, but in this sector, it's useless. Right. So at, at, at these at these facilities or in these sectors where ASR 11s were installed in lieu of to replace or in place of ASR 9s, there's no TIS uh, service available um, to the people who bit the bullet, invested the money, believed the FAA, and went ahead and installed this equipment. Now the equipment, sure, it works. It's a transponder, but the Mode S side of it, um, and the benefits of the Mode S side of it aren't available in the cockpit. The benefits to the FAA of Mode S are available on the ground, but, you know, last time I checked, uh, I wasn't on the ground. So that's the problem, one of the problems, not by no means the problem, but that's the kind of problem that I have with ADSB because uh, the one hand giveth and one hand taketh away. And, and Actually, with F- one hand giveth and two hands grab you by the... Yeah, short and tries uh-huh. to take away. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Sp- speaking moving of, right along. Yeah, moving right along. Speaking of avionics, take I, a drink. So, I've been. You know, that reminds me. I need a beer. Uh. Yeah. I uh, every time you turn around, or every time I turn around, I'm reading another article about or seeing another example of uh, some hot new cool airplane that's got a Garmin G1000 in the panel. Uh huh. And and if it's not a Garmin G1000, it's one of these these Aspen things which seem to be pretty hot now, and or, or some other glass panel technology. And and I'm just I'm pretty ignorant about how how it all works and and what's involved and so forth. And, and I just you know, I, I don't know if you could kind of fill me in just real quickly on give me give me the short course here. For example, here's one of my questions. It's not okay. simply a case of taking even a G1000 and putting it in your panel. It's not a standalone device. It in, it interconnects with other. How does this work? What, well, this? let's step back and, and look at what a G one thousand or G six hundred is. Yeah. Um, and and let's think about all the various components in the airplane. Uh, let's look at the avionics stack, for example. You've got communications radios. Uh, you've got um, VOR, ILS uh, receivers. You've got um, uh, no one has no one installs anyway uh, an ADF receiver anymore, uh, but you've got GPS receivers. Um, you've got um, a moving map, maybe. You've got um, 
uh, tools, a- avionics of that, and, and a transponder, of course. You got t- avionics like that, and then um, that's one system in the aircraft. Then you've got your flight instruments. Um, they're basically, you know, if, if steam gauges, we we call them. They're basically mechanical instruments. Some of them use um, um, pedo and static uh, uh, energy to present information. Mm-hmm. Some of them use the vacuum-driven uh, system, whether it's a vacuum pump or, or electric motor or something like that that turns a, 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 a gyro. Um, so you have these gyros that, that present an artificial horizon or present a, a directional gyro. Then you have, of course, the altimetry instruments. Um, literally, the altimeter. You have the vertical speed indicator. Those those six instruments, the, the six back, what they're called, are, are what you fly by in, a, in an IFR airplane. A, a VFR only airplane will have uh, um, fewer instruments. Uh, you have also, of course, all the instrumentation for the engine and the airplane, like fuel gauges, um, outside air temperature, things like this. Right. Um, and depending on the airplane, you might have you know you might have two engines, you might have three engines, you might have uh, um, uh, other um, equipment in the airplane that you want to um, in, um, uh, attach instrumentation to. You might have uh, uh, other communications requirements. You might have you know whatever. So you've got all these different systems. And some of these systems really, you know, kind of reached the peak of technology, the pinnacle of their technology anyway, in like the 1930s. Mm-hmm. Um, pedostatic instruments probably did. Altimetry, you know, probably did also. Um, pull all that out of your airplane and write a big check, and you too can have the latest and greatest from Garmin. And basically... <clears throat> You've got built into this. You've got two big LCD panels that one goes. Uh, um, uh, well, one goes in front of the pilot. That's the primary flight display. Uh, another one, uh, kind of depending on how much panel space you have and where you want stuff, it might maybe go on the other side of the panel. It might go right next to the PFD and, and take up maybe the center uh, space in the in the, in the instrument panel. Right. But from those two L, uh, uh, um, LCD panels, uh, with some knobs and some buttons in the bezels, you can do everything that I just talked about and, and perhaps more. Uh, um, what happens is you have these, uh, for, for example, for airspeed and um, attitude sensing, you have, and I forget what the acronym specifically stands for, attitude heading and air data A-Hars. reference system, Atahars or whatever. Yeah, um, but you have, but you have, yeah, you have digital sensors for uh, air temperature, air pressure, altimetry. In other words, you have uh, uh, digital sensors for static uh, uh, air pressure, and then you have the pitot tube is connected to another sensor. So you have all of all of that information. You have outside air temperature. Um, all of all of that is is computed by the equipment, replacing all of your steam gauges. Hmm, okay. You have you have um, uh, miniaturized gyro systems um, that replace your artificial horizon and your directional gyro. But as um, Billy would say on the commercial, but there's more. <laughs> 
but there's <laughs> more. What do we have behind door number three? Yeah, okay. Uh, you, you got radio the, control. You yeah, got the avionics. Systems control. Yeah, the uh, avionics. Basically, the engine monitoring. Take the 530 that's in my panel, Jack, Yeah. and eliminate it. Leave the knobs. The 530 is the uh, what I would call the GPS. Right, it is the the big the big color TV thing there in the middle right. of the of the airplane. Take the knobs and put them in the bezel of the LCD panel that we're talking about, and put the the works, if you will, uh, the brains of all that behind the panel. Okay, and that gives you all your navigation and all your communications, um, and it also gives you, of course, your your moving map. So once you have all this data. And we were talking about software versus hardware earlier. Once you have all this data uh, collected by virtue of all the hardware that you've just installed, it's just uh, a matter of writing software to take advantage of all this. Mm-hmm. And Garmin, you know, to their credit, has has one of the slicker uh, software packages, at least for for light aircraft out there in the in the in the one thousand. They've got the moving map. They've got a pictorial representation of the horizon. They've got um, all the airspeed. Synthetic vision. I was going to get to that. But they've got all the airspeed and altitude information. It's presented much differently than in your steam gauges because you have little vertical tapes and you have, you know, uh, little hash marks moving. And and it it can get very confusing at first for a steam gauge pilot. Um, Now, as, as, as Dave correctly pointed out, You've got basically your highway in the sky stuff, your the the Cirrus perspective uh, version of the Garmin 1000. Um, not only um, has little boxes on the screen that you literally fly the airplane through. You can do it on autopilot. You can do it by hand. You can do it with a flight director. Um, but it also, uh, based on the database it has in it, it will tell you. Where obstacles are, it will tell well, you it, it where the runway rendering. is. It, 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 it renders it. Yeah. Right, yeah. right, right. Uh, from altitude view of the terrain. And, and I've seen, all, I've seen a lot of this stuff in the all that stuff in the illustrations that come with the articles and and, right. and so forth. But it's, and it's all processing power. Right. But so my question, I guess, is to understand how. So so this G one thousand one uses an, as the, the this is the Cadillac example apparently. Um, Until it, the twelve thousand comes out. Oh, that's right. That's is uh, it, it's this this system. All its pieces, parts are kind of standalone, one-stop shopping. I mean, everything is there. Well, the the one thousand is designed from the ground up to be integrated into the airplane when the airplane is put together. And this is the, the, it's the integration part that I was trying to understand a little better. Does it need to, or is it able to interact with some of your other systems? It can, and that that and that's why they have, and I'll be they'll be happy to sell you. A Garmin G six hundred. Okay. Basically, that's a retrofit. Uh, it for, doesn't have the radios and the navigation. It, it doesn't have the radio. I, I did not know that. I thought it did. Um, I don't think. I don't believe. Uh, you, so. You're probably right. I haven't really paid a whole lot of attention to that because it's a little bit out of my price range. Um, well, uh, that's the that's talking about the, the Bendix King product. Um, the G six thousand. I'm sorry, G six hundred. Um, um, it costs three times as much as the Aspen, uh, but the price reflects greater capability. For right. I'm quoting this story uh, on on AOPA's website. Uh, so the Garmin like system is two screens. Lot more screen space. Yeah, 
The Garmin system is two screens, one for the PFD and one for the multifunction display. Now, talk about the multifunction display for a moment. Okay, that includes all your instrument and, and airframe instrumentation. Mm-hmm. You want to know what your number three uh, um, cylinder EGT is? It will be on the G six hundred or the G one thousands multifunction display. Uh, your oil pressure, all of that kind of information. Um, you'll a lot of your configuration. Um, symbology also will be on that screen. You know, do you want your, um, your contrast up, down? You know, you set all that kind of thing uh, on the on the multifunction mm-hmm. side of, of the two screen system. When we were at Oshkosh, uh, I'm yeah. sorry, finish the thought. I, no, 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 no. I, I, I'm kind of I'm starting to run out of gas here. You, no, no, you're no. Pretty much, you're about to exhaust my knowledge. Well, no. So here's a fun, which is not hard to do. Here's my follow up question then. So when we were at Oshkosh, uh, when we were talking with Craig. Uh-huh. Um, Craig Barnett, um, and he was singing the praises of this Aspen device that he had gotten recently in his airplane, and and I kind of recall him making some mention about how well it integrated with some of the other things in his uh, on his panel. Is that, that's what I thought he was saying? D- does that make sense? Is that what he was talking uh, about? Yes, it that's does. correct. Yeah, yeah. The Aspen. And what sorts uh, of things was it integrating with? Autopilot. Okay. Uh, autopilot. Uh, the uh, uh, some of the tuning equipment. The uh, weather data link. I think mainly what he's, what he's thinking radios. about is the avionics. Yeah, mostly uh, the avionics. Yeah, because uh, the Aspen is set up to basically gather all the navigation data that it can and present it um, basically on an MFD-like screen, mm-hmm. but do it um, with, with a hardware investment that is much lower uh, than than the Garmin hardware investment, um, the the Aspen basically replaces the artificial horizon and the directional gyro in a traditional steam gauge panel. It literally is sized to fit right in. Right. It has a it has a fan built into it all. It's it's a really slick piece of work. It seems that way. <clears throat> it has a bunch of connectors on the back, and those connectors in turn connect to uh, the other avionics in the airplane, whether you got a Garmin or uh, a King or or a Northstar, whatever whatever system you have, uh, the Aspen should be able to interface with it. And it it it's kind of a um, I think what Craig was speaking of, and I don't want to put words in his mouth. He's more than capable of of talking about this, and maybe we should have him on. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I think Craig was really speaking to is. Um, the, the sum of these various parts being greater than their individual um, yeah. uh, components. Well, uh, the way it. the way that the Aspen just kind of put everything together in a nice package and brought in all of these these different signals from these different pieces of hardware. Yeah. Well, the Aspen boxes are three and a half by seven inches. Okay, mm-hmm. three and a half by seven inches, and you need a pair of them. They drop into the hole of two standard instruments, like an attitude indicator and a DG. You take those out, and this goes in in the same place. You need two of those to do the primary flight display and the navigation display and the moving map and the HSI and all that stuff. Uh, So then you have two three-and-a-half-inch wide displays that are seven inches tall. you got seven by uh, about seven by seven there. The G1000 has two six-inch by about five-inch 
displays side by side in a single box. And they provide all the uh, uh, attitude indication, moving map, HSI, air data. They replace the standard six-pack and add. They do essentially the same thing, but they're doing it with about double the screen territory. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's that's significant here because that screen territory costs money. Those LCDs, particularly the active matrix, high-resolution LCDs that are used on these systems, uh, they ain't cheap. They're cheaper than they used to be. Right. Uh, but this is really a matter of depth. You're talking about a pair of systems that, to a large extent, duplicate one another. But to duplicate what a G1000 takes or what is capable of delivering in a single box, you need an Aspen PFD and an Aspen MFD side-by-side. Both of them maximized to their best potential. Right. So they'll do the same thing. One of them requires a lot less panel rework when all you got to do is take out two round instruments and plug one Aspen right. into it. Right, yeah. But the integration... Uh, you know, it's two levels, and Jeb hit on one of them. You know, it's been made to be integrated into the aircraft when it's uh, when the aircraft's built. The other level is that it integrates all the gyro instruments, all the instruments that you use for instrument work, navigation, radio, and engine instrumentation is all integrated into a single system controlled through a single architecture. And some of that can be retrofitted from other players. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Avidyne and L3 both have uh, equipment coming online, and as does Honeywell, that will do all of this stuff in an integrated fashion. Uh, or you can do something part way and integrate it with existing radios, which yeah. is what the G600 does. Yeah. Hey, it's all pretty interesting. I appreciate it. I'm going to let, let me and the rest of our listeners digest this a little bit, and maybe we'll come back to it in the future. Certainly. Yeah, well, yeah, eight yeah. hours away from being too full. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm 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 by no means an expert. I've flown the 1000. I don't know, maybe five or six times in, in various airplanes, and I'm and I'm just now starting to get to the point where I can make sense of it all. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty interesting, but it sounds yeah. like it's pretty complicated. And the, the integration well, stuff fascinates me. I'm I'm curious to learn more about how it all fits together. Well, the, the you know making the transition can be a little bit like drinking from a fire hose. Yeah, I would think. I would yeah, think it, it was for me initially, anyway. Yeah. Sure. Anyways, shoutouts. So uh, I've got one real quickly. Um, a listener sent me a link to uh, a website um, about they're going to have a pumpkin bombing uh, thing in <laughs> Sanford, Maine. This is a, this is a Halloween-related uh, uh, event. Uh, the thing that's different about this and and you know I'm going to trust that they've figured this out because it makes me a little nervous because you know there's fly-ins have for years for for generations had you know flower bombing you know where they put a take a little brown paper bag and fill it with flour and drop it onto the runway right. or onto the grass next to the runway and try and get closest to the X and so forth and there have been these kinds of competitions over the years this is different both in terms of they're dropping a pumpkin. The other thing that's different is that they're actually dropping the pumpkin into a lake that's in downtown Sanford, Maine. Oh, sign me up. Yeah. So uh, uh, it's all part of a, uh, apparently part of a, a Halloween uh, festival that goes on in, in Sanford. And uh, they're going to, um, uh, and part of the attraction is that there'll be this competition where the airplanes will uh, will fly through downtown, very low to the ground, like like 250 feet or something like that, and 
Obviously uh, over an uncongested area. Well, and if you look at the website, uh, there's a link there on the page that you can go and check it out. And uh, um, sort of near the top, there's a couple of links, one called Bomb Run Wide and Bomb Run Close, which is mm-hmm. uh, illustrations. They've got this all planned out, and I'm, I presume they've got it, you know, uh, some at some level approved by the FAA because they're they're flying pretty low over a downtown area. and But they've got the whole thing, you know, it's like this is how you go, you know, this is the the course you should follow and these are the waiting areas and the, the whole thing is apparently pretty well, carefully planned out not, not only are they flying pretty low over a downtown area but they're purposefully tossing objects out of the airplane yeah. At, yeah. At, yeah. At, over that downtown area so i kind of like to think that the faa has hopefully sprinkled holy water on this yeah, before so, they go out and try to do they're, it they're, yeah. they're going to be the first in line for the pumpkin pies that's right yeah so uh the, the text here suggests says that it's approved by the faa so uh but i'm going to learn a little bit more about it here i'm not sure if i'm going to be in town that day but uh, if i am I'm gonna... <laughs> i would not be no, i want to go see <laughs> I want to go see this. This sounds great. Yeah, squash uh, is one thing. Pumpkins, that's a little over the top. Yeah, so this is uh, September 18th through the 21st, 2008 in Sanford, Maine. If you're in the area, you might want to check it out. Um, the uh, uh, the link it's it's a very complicated URL. We'll put it in the show notes and you can check it out, or just probably Google Sanford, Maine pumpkin bombing might get you something good. I don't know. <laughs> It'll certainly get you something good. It may or may not get you this particular thing. Uh, that was my shout out. Well, you guys got anything? I got a real quickie. Uh, hats off to the folks at Fort Myers, Virginia, who are a few couple of weeks from celebrating the 100th anniversary of military aviation. That's right. And they commemorate uh, the Wright brothers' first passenger carrying demonstration flight with the U.S. Army in 1908. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's going to be a bit of a do at Fort Myers. You can't drive onto the grounds. You can park across the street. You can uh, just Google it, and you will find information on it. But that's coming up about mid-September. Uh, something to check out, the right experience, folks, who replicated the right flyer for the uh, Century of Flight celebration. They have built an exact replica of the passenger-carrying version uh, that the Wright brothers used in that 1908 demo, which, by the way, did result in the first military contract That's for right. an aircraft manufacturer. That's right. The, the the original Wright flyer, of course, was the was the first, but it was the 1908 flyer that was really the groundbreaking one that really really right. triggered right. the development of aviation and Getting- military industrial complex. Yeah, well, that, well that that and being bumped off a United flight. <laughs> that's <right. laughs> so that's great. What's the dates and locations of that thing, Dave? I don't have them in front of me. Okay, well, uh, I'm we'll, sorry. We'll dig them up and put them in the show notes, and uh, that'll be cool. Jeb, Jeb, you got anything? Um, Clark Walker and um, his people uh, in Tipton, Georgia, at Walker Aviation. They've been uh, taking care of my airplane when I uh, escaped from Florida for uh, Tropical Storm slash Hurricane Fay. And I uh, just want to thank them for all their, uh, their service and their perseverance and their patience. That's great. Yep. And if you get more than... for it, we'll split it with you. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I tell you what, you know, if, if in fact, both of these hurricanes come steaming close to Sarasota, um, and, you know, by the end of the, even the season, there's another one or two, 20, 25 grand, you can have the thing, man. (laughs) It's all yours. 
Well, thank you, boys. All right, folks. Thank you, boys. Jeb Burnside is an aviation journalist. He's currently serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine, and you can learn more about Jeb and his work at jebburnside.com, aviationsafetymagazine.com, and avweb.com. And Dave Higdon is an aviation photographer, a senior editor for Kit Planes Magazine, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. Learn more about Dave and his work at kitplanes.com and avbuyer.com slash worldaircraftsales. And I am Jack Hodgson, a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. Learn more about me at jackhodgson.com and aroundthefield.net. And, ch- and learn more about uh, the uh, podcast, Uncontrolled Airspace, at the uncontrolledairspace.com website. Check out our wiki, check out the uh, blog, check out the forums. A lot of fun stuff going on there. David, what were you going to say? Go flying, because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. Live longer, fly longer. That's right. That's enough talking. Let's all go flying. TTFN. <laughs> <laughs>